Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and joining me as always in the garage, a man that knows just as well as I do that you fully intended that pun. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain. Yeah, it's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Ritual Destruction by one of my very favorite brewers. That's Jackie O's. Ritual Destruction is a hazy double IPA that is bright, effervescent, and features a hint of apricot made from real apes. ABV 9%, garage grade 4 and a quarter bottle caps out of 5. And let's give some praise and thank you to our good friends for helping us out this week. First up, a cheers to Charlene and Andrea in Rochester, New York. And a big shout to Gretchen in Wanakee, Wisconsin. Next up, Captain, we have a double-fisted cheers that goes out to Andy in Utah and Dan the Van Man, who is probably somewhere in Colorado. And a big we like your jib to Jennifer in Plainfield, Indiana. And here's a cheers that goes out to Caitlin in Conway, South Carolina. And last but certainly not least, we have Jenna in Olathe, Kansas. Everybody that we just mentioned, they helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we say you're very generous and we thank you very much. Yeah, B-E-E-R-U-N, Beer Run. And if you need more True Crime Garage in your earballs, all of our old episodes are available everywhere for free. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Podcasts, Sirius XM. You can check that out on the Sirius XM app. But also, if you want to get our bonus show, it's only on Stitcher Premium. It's called Off the Record. You can go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on Off the Record to sign up. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
The city of Beatrice is located in the southern portion of the great Cornhusker state of Nebraska. Beatrice was once featured on the popular show Unsolved Mysteries for a famous story from the city's history that took place in 1950 when a natural gas explosion destroyed a church during the church choir's regularly scheduled practice. But miraculously, all 15 choir members survived because for a variety of different reasons, each of the 15 were running late that day. The true crime story we are featuring today did not make it on Unsolved Mysteries and takes place 35 years later in 1985. Today, and back in 85, the population of Beatrice is practically the same. Right around 12,500 people lived in Beatrice, which is in Gage County, Nebraska. And we will reference both Beatrice City Police and Gage County Sheriff's Department during our garage exploration of this case. Helen Wilson was born in the nearby village of Pickerel, which is also in Gage County. She was born on July 13, 1916, and at the time of our story, she was 68 years old and living alone. Helen was retired, and her husband passed away years earlier. She was very active in her local Methodist church. In fact, she helped out quite a bit by watching some of the children at the church while their parents attended. She was also a member of the Gage County Historical Society and the Eagles Auxiliary. In the days leading up to February 1985, Helen was not feeling well. Helen had pneumonia and was relying on the help of others, including her daughter, Jan. Winters in Nebraska are cold, and the February nights are even colder. On the night of February 5th, 1985, 68-year-old Helen Wilson went to bed. The next morning, Helen's brother went to her apartment on North 6th Street, and sadly, at approximately 9.30 a.m. on February 6th, he found Helen dead. She had been murdered sometime between when she went to bed the night before and that morning. This is True Crime Garage, and this is a case of Helen Wilson and the Beatrice Six. Sixty-eight-year-old Helen Wilson lived alone in a small four-room apartment located near the downtown area of Beatrice, across Route 77 from Charles Park, in apartment number four at 212 North 6th Street. Her lifeless body was found February 6, 1985. Helen had been raped and suffocated to death. Helen Wilson leaves behind three children, seven grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. They held a closed casket service in the days that followed, and she was buried next to her husband, Ray, at Pleasant View Cemetery. Let's take a look at the crime scene, Captain, and go through some of the evidence in regards to this rape-homicide investigation. First off, there were very obvious signs of a break-in and a violent struggle at the scene. The door had been pried open. Helen was found dead in the living room, but there were things at the scene to indicate that the attack started in her bedroom and then ended in the living room. Helen's hands were bound with a towel. Now, the towel 
came from inside of her apartment. Her face was covered with a scarf that was tied around her neck and or head covering her face. This too was her scarf. Her nightgown was lifted up. There was a lot of evidence, a lot of physical evidence at the crime scene. Semen was found on Helen's body and collected during her autopsy. It was also found on the carpet where her body was found on and portions of her clothing as well. And a cutting from her gown she was wearing contained blood stains. There were also blood stains on her bed. They found three fingerprints, at least three fingerprints found throughout the apartment that they did not have a match for or any reasonable explanation why they would be there. A knife was also left at the crime scene, and this contained fingerprints other than Helen's. The knife came from Helen's kitchen. So when you see a scene like this, Captain, the first thoughts are someone broke into this home, clearly in the middle of the night. She must have been sleeping in the bedroom. He surprises her using a knife to probably try to control the victim and the fight for whatever reason, the scuffle mm-hmm. ends in the living room where her body is eventually found the next morning. Did they know if the unidentified fingerprints match the prints on the knife? That's a good question. And I don't have a solid answer for you, Captain, because of the wording in the information that we have. It would seem to me that this individual, whoever committed this crime or individuals that committed this crime, at least one of them was not wearing any type of gloves to try to hide their fingerprints because we found these on the knife itself. Right. The other fingerprints that were found throughout the apartment, I'm guessing belong to the same individual, but there is no definitive statement that I saw that says, yes, this is all from the same individual. There was a significant amount of cash and valuables that were found in her apartment, meaning that anybody that broke in that night during this attack could have loaded up on cash and other valuables before leaving her apartment, but for whatever reason did not. And you could say maybe they didn't know that these things were here or there, but a quick search of her small apartment would have found at least $1,300 in cash and other valuables. It's also a different time. At that time period, a lot of people kept cash on them. Nowadays, I just walk out of my house with my debit card. I don't even carry cash on my person. Yeah, and there was $1,300 cash in the top drawer of her dresser in her bedroom that anybody could have found. Now, blood type serology at the time, this is 1985, was considered to be the top scientific method to solve crimes when the perpetrator left blood, hair with follicles, and or semen at the crime scene. There are four main human blood types, A, B, AB, and O. I have that tiger blood. People are either secretors or non-secretors, and about 85% of the population are secretors. Wilson's rapist and murderer left semen at the murder scene. Now, tests revealed that the killer was type B blood, which is more rare than the other types, and a non-secretor. So this is really going to limit the population. You know, we're not using DNA technology back then to solve crimes, Mm -hmm. but this is going to limit how many people could have possibly committed this crime. That is a big help for your investigation. So in this case, Captain, we're looking for 
someone with type B blood and a non-secretor. And the information that I have seen says that back in 1985, only about one in 10 people carried this rare blood type, according to police reports. And this was a single apartment. This was a apartment building. Somebody actually messed with the fuse box and it turned all the lights off in the hallways. Yeah. So police immediately believe that this is connected to the murder itself, that this wasn't just something that was a coincidence. And from my understanding, Captain, there's at least three floors in this building. And her apartment, apartment number four, was on the second floor. What this indicates to me is that whoever perpetrated this crime had some kind of knowledge of this building. The other thing, too, is you have to wonder, would the perpetrator have known or known of, no matter how loosely, the victim themselves? Yeah, it seems like a targeted victim to me also by cutting out the power so there's no lights in the hallway it gives her no way of knowing if somebody let's say knocked on the door Mm -hmm. and then she went to the door to see who it was she would have no way of seeing out of her people and we have a situation too here where we can really kind of narrow down the time frame of when the murder occurred first off If you do believe that the cutting of the lights, this also affected the furnace in the building too. Remember, this is February in Nebraska. So Mm -hmm. some of the residents woke up to apartments that were extremely cold because at some point the heat just stopped kicking on. Well, the other reason that you would cut the lights off too is as you're exiting the crime, that if a neighbor went to see you, they would have a harder time identifying you. And the way that we can narrow down the time frame of the murder and the attack itself is we have relatives. Remember, we have Helen Wilson. She's older. She's suffering from pneumonia at the time. She's not been feeling well. They were kind of taking care of her, some of her relatives. They were there till, I believe, 9.45 p.m. the night before, to which she said to them before they left that she would be going to bed shortly afterward. There were some phone calls that were made to her apartment that night that went unanswered. We also have the situation of her relatives finding her the next morning when they're trying to call and again, getting no answer. So we really only have a time frame of about 12 hours where this could have taken place. Pretty large time frame, though. Again, there was a significant amount of cash that was found inside of the apartment, easily available to anybody that was in there. And from the attack itself and from the forensic evidence that we just described, it's easy to believe that the perpetrator probably spent a good deal of time inside of the apartment. Now, in regards to some of the autopsy information, I mean, this was a brutal attack that not only involved rape, but from the coroner's opinion, involved necrophilia after the fact. They found blood under her fingernails that belonged to the perpetrator, but her body was in bad shape. As we said, there was a towel wrapped around her hands and wrists. And this scarf was wrapped around her neck and head, covering her face. She suffered traumatic fractures to her sternum, left fifth and sixth ribs, and the left humerus. She also had suffered abrasions to the face, thorax, and right knee. And she had clear defensive wounds on her hands and wrist. 
consistent with sharp instrument lacerations. Well, and the more that you fight, the more chance that you have to collect DNA evidence on your body. As bad as this attack was, and as brutal as it sounds, Captain, there is belief by the experts that say that they do not think that the perpetrator intended to kill the victim. And the way that they explain this, and it doesn't make sense on the surface now, does it? But the way that they explain it is they think that the attacker simply wanted to rape and incapacitate the victim and then flee at some point. Mm -hmm. The combination of using all of that force and uh, the scarf on her face and around her neck combined with the pneumonia that she was suffering from was enough to sadly do her in. Well, and like you said, there was some sign of necrophiliac. You wonder if the murderer even knew that she was dead. Yes, that's exactly right. And we need to really focus in on this blood evidence that was found and the science that's involved in that. As we said, according to the police reports in 1985, only about one in 10 people carried this rare blood type. Police really worked this case good. And what's going to sound weird by the time we get to the end of this case, you're going to go, Colonel, what are you talking about, buddy? When this case first took place, when they found Helen Wilson's body, the investigating agency at that time was the Beatrice Police Department. We have Beatrice Police Chief Luckenroth and Detective Sergeant Stevens, who will be up front and center in regards to this case. Luckenroth will be the one that will speak with media and will oversee the investigation, but Detective Sergeant Stevens will be the one leading the actual investigation. And they had some information early on that led them to several suspects. Because of the fingerprints, you start questioning, is this one murderer or a group? Well, one of the individuals that they were looking at was a man by the name of Bruce Smith, who was kind of a drifter. He was a one-time resident of Beatrice who had moved away and was back in town briefly. Right. Bruce Smith, Captain, was the early prime suspect, and I'm talking about March 1985, about a month after the murder. The way that Bruce Smith gets onto the radar of the Beatrice Police Department is an individual comes forward and says, hey, I'm friends with this guy. He was in town, and we spent the night at a bar drinking, and he wouldn't shut up about wanting to get laid that night. Well, we end up hanging out with some old friends of ours and going to an after party that just keeps getting later and later in the night, and we end up crashing at these young ladies' place. Bruce Smith and his friend are in their early to mid-20s in 1985, but something happens in the middle of that night. And what happens is one of these young ladies says, hey, you know, I'm sleeping and Bruce Smith attacked me, attempted to rape me or sexually assault me in the middle of the night. So basically we know that he's this local creep and that he's back into town. So they start going through a list of people that are capable of something like this. Yeah. Well, his friend is the one that brings... Bruce Smith to the attention of police because he says, well, some friend that is the way that that works out is when he tries to assault this young woman, she gives him the business and basically kicks his ass. Good for her. And his quote unquote friend or 
you know, sometimes you think you're friends with somebody and then you learn who they really are and decide we're not really friends. Uh, this friend also joined in on kicking Bruce Smith's ass so much so that he then escorted Bruce Smith out of their residence and decided, you know what, Bruce, where you want to go? I'm going to take you somewhere and drop you off. You can't stay here. So he drops Bruce Smith off and he just says, look, I want to tell you, police, this is what was going on that night. I know she never reported the attack, but I'm not saying that they're connected. I'm just letting you know that this is the type of guy that was here in Beatrice that night. And this is what I know he did that night that he attacked this other woman. Police love this lead, right? They end up tracking down Bruce Smith, and he was out of town, I believe, in fact, out of state. And they track him down and talk with him, and he's pretty cooperative. He says, yes, I was in town that night. Some things happened. It was a misunderstanding. And he was willing to cooperate with their investigation. Yeah, I'm sure it was a misunderstanding. They have, law enforcement has this blood type that they know is going to rule out most of the suspects. So they Mm -hmm. say, plain and simple, Anytime they're interviewing anybody about this case, they say, just give us your blood. Give us some your, your blood and your fingerprints. I want to suck your blood. And we will check into the information, and it will either clear you or it will keep you on our list. Bruce Smith submits blood and fingerprints to the police department. They run a check on it, and it turns out that Bruce Smith, who is now their prime suspect tested and the forensics showed that he was in fact type B blood, but he was a secretor. So this cleared him and he was free to go. Police are going to have to move on with their investigation. I I just wonder if that, if you have two blood types, one, a secretor, one, a non secretor, if that would mess up the testing. Well, you can have a mixed sample. Like you'd have like the victim's blood was a secretor. So somehow that gets tampered with the other blood and, that would confuse the test. Yes, you can have a mixed sample when it comes to the forensics on these cases. In fact, that's what we had in the Barbara Blatnick case that we discussed uh, a couple years ago. About 90 days into Beatrice, Police Chief Don Luckenroth's homicide of Helen Wilson investigation, police announced that phone tips and police suspicions led to checks into 62 men. Now, around this time... Helen's daughter, Jan, was interviewed. Jan said that the citizens of Beatrice and others from around the area were very sympathetic to her and her family, saying, quote, This town is fantastic. I've lived here all my life, and the people are just wonderful. And she spoke highly of law enforcement personnel working the case as well, saying, quote, They've been nothing but considerate of our feelings right from the start. Shortly after the murder of Helen Wilson, her family established a reward fund being offered for information leading to the arrest of the killer. When Helen's family set up the reward, it was for $1,000. But after 90 days and with the help of other contributors from members of the public, the reward as of June of 1985 was just over $3,500. Now, Jan urged members of the elderly community to take security precautions and asked that if anyone may have seen something out of the ordinary on February 3rd and February 4th, or if they know someone acting strange after the murder, to please contact Beatrice Police Department. Well, the FBI also was brought into this case pretty quickly. They sent out just a single agent 
But like we said, this is a very small town, just a little over 12,000 people. And with that blood sample, you're able to eliminate so much of the population. There will be a lot of blame to be thrown around here, Captain, in what will ultimately be a horrific investigation into this murder case. What I want to point out one more time is Police Chief Luckenroth and the Detective Stevens. Look at the work that they're doing. It's 1985. They are making sure that they collect all of the proper forensic evidence at the crime scene, that it's stored properly, that it's tested, and that that information is kept and used to steer their investigation. They're also bringing in other agencies. They recognize, look, we're the Beatrice Police Department. This might be above our bar. So let's bring in an expert and have them assist us or at least tell us where to go with our investigation because we need a little guidance. Usually these things are solved within 48 to 72 hours. Let's bring in the FBI. So the FBI sends Special Agent Peter Klismet to speak with and work with the Beatrice Police Department. And he's going to put together an FBI profile, a perpetrator profile on Helen Wilson's homicide investigation. And my summarized version of his profile reads as follows. It is not likely that Helen Wilson was a victim of a crime of opportunity. It is possible the victim was surveilled or possibly known to the offender. Robbery was definitely, listen to that, robbery was definitely not the motive for the attack or murder. The knife used came from inside the home. This was used by the perpetrator to gain control of the victim. This attack is definitely connected to the same individual that committed the failed attacks on single elderly women a year and a half to two years ago. All right, so I want to talk about this and break in here for a minute here, Captain. So you want to break into your own conversation. In Beatrice. Yes. In 1983. There were several attacks that were undetermined to be related or not, where someone broke into a single elderly woman's home or apartment and attempted to either rape them or assault them, but was unsuccessful for whatever reason. May have gotten scared off. Maybe she fought back, got spooked, whatever. Ended up leaving the scene, fleeing the scene. This information was given to the FBI when they were reviewing Helen Wilson's murder investigation. And this is our special agent saying this attack, in his opinion, was definitely connected to those three failed attacks that took place a year and a half to two years ago. He goes on to add, these attacks took place in the middle of the night within blocks, within blocks of Helen Wilson's apartment. Mm-hmm. The killer may live alone. He might live close to the murder scene and the previous attacks. He's probably unemployed. If he does work, it's unskilled labor. He has a terrible self-image and is confused about his own sexual identity. Between the last known attack, the attempted rape in August of 1983, that's the last of the three attacks that took place previously, Yeah. and the murder of Helen Wilson in February of 1985, The attacker may have left town for a new job, joined the military, or been busted for prowling somewhere. It goes on to say that there's a strong possibility that the killer hated or resented older women 
and probably had a terrible relationship with his mother. Oh, not his mother. He may have experienced emotional abuse or torment from his mother, grandmother, or some other older female relative. This attack, rape, and murder was most definitely committed by one single male perpetrator. The man that you are looking for is most likely a white male, short or of medium height, in his early 20s, thin, a high school dropout, considered a loner, viewed as odd or wimpy in school, and came from a broken home. He owns pornography and likely spent time in a juvenile facility or underwent counseling. He has engaged in fetish burglaries and or window peeping. If he has not been arrested for these types of crimes, he did it without being caught. He is sloppy. He is dressed poorly. He has bad hygiene. He knew the area and possibly the building. He had a well-planned escape route and did not feel that he would be caught. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get 
their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Cheers. Cheers to, the to you, Cam. on the front, and the people in the back, the people in the bathroom. Cheers to you, too. Wash the, your hands. And that man wearing the red shirt. You know somebody that's going to freak him out. How did the captain know he was wearing a red shirt? It's because we can see you. I can see you. Captain, now's the point in the story where we have to introduce Burdette Searcy. Mm. Who is Burdette Searcy? Well, he's an individual that was a one-time Beatrice police officer and then goes on to become a private investigator. And afterward, he will then become a deputy for the Gage County Sheriff's Office. Now, I do not know this individual, obviously, but he comes off to me as somebody who thinks of himself as one of these famous detectives that you see on TV, you know, fictional detectives that you might see on HBO or on Netflix, solving the unsolvable murder of the small town that he lives in. Old Frank Dribben. What happens in this situation is we have the Beatrice Police Department that's doing good work 
in their investigation and they keep coming up with suspects and persons of interest and they're using the blood evidence that they found at the scene to clear these individuals. It's pretty simple, right? We have very unique evidence. So when we have that very unique evidence and we go, okay, well, this guy is pot, this guy possibly could have done it or this, these people could have possibly done it. And you go talk to them and you find out, Hey, they don't have an alibi. Let's get them to test the evidence. And so when they test against the evidence, they have to rule that individual out. It's pretty simple. Just like what we saw with Bruce Smith. The police, the Beatrice Police Department really liked him for this murder. He gave his blood. They test it. It doesn't match up 100%. They move on to the next guy. What ends up happening here, though, is because they keep clearing individuals, the case drags on for months and then for years. In fact... Burdett Searcy does not become a deputy at the sheriff's office until this case is a couple of years old. Mm-hmm. He is an obsessed officer, obsessed with the murder of Helen Wilson and obsessed with solving it. He was considered by the Beatrice Police Department to be an average cop. It sounds to me like a lot of the other officers didn't care for him much, that he was hard to work with and difficult to get along with. That might be why he ended up being a private investigator for a while, and then he gets hired as a sheriff. Yeah. He did try to get back on at Beatrice, but they I don't know if they turned him down or if he was offered the deputy job before uh, that was worked out. So Burdett Searcy is determined to solve the murder of Helen Wilson. And look, I love a good, passionate detective who is for the people and looking to right a wrong and bring justice to uh, any of our victims here. So I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on that side of it. Yeah, but sometimes passion turns into stupidity. But what we're going to see here, Captain, is a situation where I think this man's obsession may have taken him over. And I will cite just some of the portions of this investigation or his investigation as it unfolds here. So first, he has information or claims that he has information from a young woman named Lisa Podendorf. Now, this Lisa Podendorf will go on to be labeled as informant number one. And I have a summarized version of the story that she told to Cersei. Lisa stated that at approximately 7.30 or 8 a.m. on February 6, 1985, While she was standing in Charles Park, located by the junior high school in the city of Beatrice, Nebraska, that she was approached by Joanne Taylor, who began to visit with her. She stated that during their conversation, she noted that there were several police cars in and about the apartment building located across the street from the high school building, and that she had made a comment to Joanne Taylor that she wondered why all of the police cars were at that location. To which Joanne Taylor then replied, Oh, haven't you heard? There was an older lady killed there last night. Lisa asked Joanne Taylor what had happened, and Joanne Taylor stated to her that an older lady was killed there and that she was killed by suffocation. Lisa asked how Joanne knew that information. Joanne stated that I know that because Joseph White and myself did it. Lisa replied back to Joanne, oh, sure, in disbelief. And Joanne Taylor said, look, 
I can tell you where the lady is lying and what happened to her. Joanne then advised her that the woman could be found lying in her living room near a hallway on her back with her hands bound and that her face would be covered with an afghan. Lisa made a comment to Joanne, oh, sure, I'll bet you did it. Right. Joanne Taylor then replied to Lisa, hey, look, I can prove it. I can even tell you the color of the footstool that's lying by the body. And Joanne Taylor proceeded to state that there would be a footstool lying by the body turned upside down and that the footstool was vinyl covered green in color. So there's a lot of information in that general statement that Lisa Podendorf provided to Burdett Searcy at his request. Some of that information is factual crime scene information, and some of it is incorrect. Yeah, bullshit malarkey. We do need to point out that this is information that Searcy says he received shortly after the homicide, but then received it again years later from this same source. One of the problems with this Lisa's statement is right from Jump Street, where she says at approximately 7.30 to 8 o'clock a.m. on February 6th, she's standing there, she talks to Joanne Taylor, and they're discussing all of the police cars across the street that are in front of that apartment building. Well, we know that Helen Wilson's body was not discovered until 9.29 a.m. There were no police cars there during the time that she says she was having this conversation and that police cars were there. Right. The information about where the body was located in the apartment was correct. The manner of death was correct. In fact, the stool kicked over lying on its side near the body was correct as well. This is going to prompt Deputy Searcy to believing, well, by Jove, I've got it. I've finally solved the unsolvable murder of our small town. Well, but every time, you know, in his defense, if you're if you hear this rumor years ago and now this rumor is creeping back up, you start thinking that maybe there's some weight there to it. Well, and in a move that I don't love, but I guess, you know, sometimes if something's not getting solved, you got to get other people involved. The sheriff's office, knowing this information now, they're determined to take over this case. And I imagine they were probably assisting the Beatrice Police Department along the way up to this point. But basically what you have here, Captain, is the Beatrice Police Department, in particular Detective Stevens and the police chief, they are now telling the sheriff and his deputy, Cersei, like, we understand that you have this information from this Lisa Podendorf. We know who she is. She's not a reliable, honest person. Right. This is not somebody that we would take important information from. You know, this is stuff that you do collect and you investigate it and you look into it and it's quickly, it's usually quickly brushed aside because there's no, there's no weight. There's no credit, nothing backing it up. And that was Stephen's concern in regards to the statements that were given to Cersei. In fact, he goes on to say, another officer goes on to tell Cersei and warn Cersei, watch out what she's saying to you, because this is a person who's not only unreliable, but of very limited intelligence. Right. Cersei takes this, her statement to be gospel, that now we have Joanne Taylor and her friend, Joseph White, who committed this crime. 
So now this is going to lead Cersei to interviewing Joanne Taylor and this Joseph White. So again, they have this, let's call her eyewitness, Lisa Podendorf. Years earlier, she's telling a story. Now she's kind of telling the same story. But everybody has dismissed the story because of her character and and she's just not a believable source. But for some reason, they're going to take her as a source now and run with this. Well, not only that, we have Cersei, the Deputy Cersei, who is now telling the sheriff's office that he works for, look, my confidential informants, I have more than one, not just this Lisa person, but they've given me information that has assisted in identifying several persons who are known in the area where the Wilson homicide occurred. So in addition to this Joseph White and Joanne Taylor, Cersei is now telling the sheriff's office that this investigation has led him to consider Thomas Winslow, Cliff Sheldon, Mark Goodson, Beth Johnson, Debbie Brown, and Charlotte Mendenhall, also known as Charlotte Bishop, as persons of interest in this case. At this time... At this time, he's not necessarily saying that all of these individuals did, in fact, commit the the murder. Right. But these are all persons of interest to him based off of information that he's been told by, you know, these could be local gossip people. They could be rumors that are going around town. Mm -hmm. But whatever he's hearing is leading him to believe that some of these individuals are involved in Helen Wilson's homicide. Well, and sometimes when you have a, especially a local case and very small community, you start hearing these rumors, but you might have, okay, one or two of these individuals are the killers, but we know that they were all at a party at some point and this story was shared. So all these individuals know about the crime. The interesting thing here, Captain, is now we have eight individuals that Cersei is concerned with as being possible persons of interest. And he's going to have to investigate each one of these individuals, at the very least, check into the, their whereabouts, see if they have alibis, maybe obtain blood from each one of them and fingerprints, interview them, figure out who to leave on his list of suspects or include on his list of suspects and who to eliminate. So as he's investigating these persons of interest, he verified that on the night of the homicide, one of his persons of interest cliff sheldon was at a hospital and beth johnson was at her parents okay so they seem to have pretty good alibis mark goodson told cersei that he was out of town on the night of the homicide and it appears that cersei believed goodson's statement sounds like cersei's willing to believe just about anything thomas winslow claimed that he was working at a truck stop on the night of the homicide But we have some information where Cersei does some good work here. He actually finds out later that this Thomas Winslow called in sick that night. So while Winslow may have thought that he was at work or at least was using that as a false alibi, Cersei finds information to determine that that, in fact, is not correct and he does not have an alibi. At this point in the investigation, they went from thinking that maybe eight people were involved or knew something about the crime to five people that could be involved or know something about the crime. 
And he's really going to hone in on three of these characters in particular. And that's going to be Joseph White, Joanne Taylor, who he's already been told by Lisa were there and committed that murder. And now he is interested in this Winslow guy because remember, he does not have an alibi for that night. He does a little more digging into Winslow and figures out that he has a previous arrest record. It's all kind of pretty petty stuff, Mm -hmm. but of interest on his arrest record is a situation where someone kicked in a door to an elderly woman's home in the middle of the night. She calls it in police show up on the scene and they find a man walking in the area Well, this is that Winslow character. So he's brought in and actually charged with some kind of misdemeanor of menacing or vandalism, uh, vandalism, something of that nature. Well, he sees that on Winslow's record and he says, you know what? This is a clear indicator that he was probably trying to break into that woman's home so that he could rape and maybe even kill or rob the woman that night. Yeah. And And his little pea brain, he's going, got him, got him. To Winslow's credit, he says he was simply just walking in the area. When police showed up, he was the only one there, so they believed that he, in fact, was the one that was guilty of kicking in this woman's door. Well, and as they're doing more digging, too, they figure out that Joseph White and Joanne Taylor, the ones that he believes are responsible for these murders, left town just a little bit after the murders took place. That information is true, and that's certainly going to make them look guilty to Deputy Cersei. What we have here, Captain, is a situation where Winslow gets himself into some kind of trouble. He ends up being involved in a pretty brutal robbery that takes place. And it sounds like Winslow was kind of the lookout man. And this robbery goes bad and his partner ends up severely assaulting the man that was robbed. So Winslow is facing now decades in prison for this violent robbery that he was involved in. This is going to be Cersei's in, right? He's going to be able to go to the jail while this guy's waiting for his trial. And he's going to be able to talk with him. And he says to him, look, I know that you have some kind of information in regards to the homicide of Helen Wilson. Tell me what you know. Do you know a Joanne Taylor? Yes. Do you know a Joseph White? Yes. You're friends with them. I was friends with them a long time ago. I was friends with them four years ago, just before they left town shortly after the murder. What ends up happening is after a long interview process, Winslow is now saying and getting an opportunity to get off of this long prison sentence for the violent robbery. If he agrees to say that Joseph White and Joanne Taylor told him that they committed the homicide and that is why they were leaving town. Right, because at this point we have Lisa that we can't believe. Even Everybody in town is saying we can't believe her. But if we have her saying it and another person saying it, now we have two people going to be able to testify against Joseph and Joanne. Today we will be recommending Failure of Justice by John Farrick. This book is fantastic on the case, and it's a really long process here, Captain, how they get from the FBI telling them one single male perpetrator committed this crime to now we're up to three people, right? We're, we're, we're at two people were involved and one guy Winslow knows about it. And because he's facing a lengthy prison sentence, 
he's all more than happy to throw his former friends under the bus and say, yeah, they told me they were getting out of Dodge because they committed the murder. Right. Interview after interview after interview. He wants to know that they told him details. They didn't just tell you that they committed the crime and they're, they're leaving town. Did they No, they told you intimate details. Didn't they tell you this, that the other thing he's feeding Winslow information to help fill in a lot of the blanks and give him details unknown to the public details about the homicide, the rape and the attack itself, showing him pictures of the crime scene. Well, and we see this all the time, you know, look at West Memphis three, or whatever, where it's like, oh well, they, oh well, they use this weapon, and the the cops go, oh, you sure it was that weapon? You sure it wasn't a knife? You sure it wasn't this? And they just kind of point them into the correct direction. Armed with this information, they are going to go back to their original suspects, Joseph White and Joanne Taylor. To which Joseph White, he says, look, I'm innocent. I do not know what you're talking about. I didn't kill any woman. I didn't do it with Joanne Taylor. I didn't leave town because I killed a woman. I I have no involvement in this at all. And furthermore, they don't have any evidence that Joseph White did this other than this confession from this Winslow guy they just received. And it's, you know, a little bit of information that turns into a lot of information. But then you have these fingerprints and you go, how about we test these fingerprints and this blood evidence? Well, that's the thing. What happens is the blood evidence doesn't match Joseph White. The fingerprints don't match Joseph White. Well, that's okay because we now know that two people were there. So does the blood match Joanne Taylor? No. Do the fingerprints match Joanne Taylor? No. Well, well Winslow there knew somebody else there. Winslow knew about this crime. He says that he knew about it. Maybe he knows more than what he's telling us. Maybe he was there that night too and helped the two of them commit this crime. Maybe he was actually even involved in the murder and rape itself. Now we're up to three people tied together being involved in the murder and rape. They test Thomas Winslow's blood. It doesn't match. The fingerprints do not match. At some point you'd start going, hey, all these uh, no's equal they're not involved but he doesn't stop there he goes okay well now we got these three suspects but they don't match so while they knew about the crime possibly were there so now i need to find another individual that actually matches the evidence through this they will get a confession from joanne taylor and thomas winslow Thomas Winslow goes from just knowing about the crime to now he's completely involved and he's confessing that he was in fact there and was involved in the attack itself. Their stories are all a little, you know, they're not 100% lining up, but they're close. Joanne Taylor and Thomas Winslow's stories are close. And what's interesting to me here, Captain, is that these are fairly detailed, actually not fairly, they're very detailed accounts of what went down that night. How much of that information was fed to them? is certainly to be called into question. Now, note, Joseph White is still proclaiming innocence. He never confesses to anything. He never implicates anybody else in the homicide. In fact, he even says, I believe you know, I was with Joanne Taylor that night, so she couldn't have committed the crime or committed it with anybody else. Through the statements that they get from Joanne Taylor and the altered statements that they get from Thomas Winslow, they will go on to implicate a Deborah Sheldon and James Dean. So now 
We have five individuals that committed this rape and homicide. And what is Cersei's theory? The theory is that Winslow, White, and Taylor had prior knowledge of the victim and prior knowledge of her belongings and that she would have money and that they went there to rob this elderly woman. The robbery then turned into a rape and a murder. Keep in mind, the FBI, who originally assisted the Beatrice Police Department, who, again, was doing good work on the case before the sheriff's office took it over, told the police department this is almost certainly a single male perpetrator, and the motive was definitely not robbery. Yeah, single male. Now we're having females involved, and we're up to five people. Right. Well, now are and again the nose, the amount of nose that they got. The nose knows. The nose knows. Now with the addition of Deborah Sheldon and James Dean, we have two possible people that we can connect the fingerprints and blood evidence to. And again, it's more nose. No way. It doesn't match the blood of Sheldon or James Dean. Come on. If the glove don't fit, you must have quit. <laughs> we have a shirt that will tell you differently. Um, the... Interesting thing here, though, Captain, is now we still need to find somebody that the blood evidence will match, right? We're up to five perpetrators, and nobody's matched the blood. Well, let's keep going. Why stop at five? There's an interesting little tidbit to this whole story, and part of that is that Thomas Winslow, for about a week, maybe a few nights to a week, stayed at the home of Kathy Gonzalez. Kathy Gonzalez lived on the third floor of the apartment building. Mm. In fact, directly above our victim, Helen Wilson. It is believed that Gonzalez and Winslow, because of this arrangement, he stayed there crashing on her couch for a few days. She was trying to help him out because he was basically homeless after his girlfriend dumped him and kicked him out of her place. Get out, you son of a bitch. So now... Cersei believes that this provided knowledge about the victim and her apartment and her belongings from Kathy Gonzalez and Thomas Winslow. So they track down this Kathy Gonzalez. She is adamant. I did not have anything to do with this. I remember exactly what I was doing that night because the next morning was very strange for me. They found a murder victim, a person that I knew that I lived near. How could I forget what I was doing? She said that she had done laundry, watched a movie, went to bed, and that Winslow was not living at her residence at that time. She had kicked him out, too. It goes from Kathy Gonzalez doing laundry and watching a movie that night to her confessing to being involved in the murder as well and implicating all of these same people that have been implicated by the others. Six people will ultimately be charged with the murder of Helen Wilson. Five of them confessed to being involved and confessed that the others were involved as well. Kathy Gonzalez, her blood matched, but not 100%. And so we well, I sur- thought the blood was from a male. Well, the blood evidence is not going to suggest if it's male or female. They're not doing DNA evidence. We're saying, hey, we got fingerprints and we have blood evidence and we have semen. So we know the semen's from a man. So we're going to assume that the blood is from a man as well. That's what the FBI is stating. 
And to be clear, the forensics that were conducted, the tests that were conducted on the blood evidence found at the scene and the forensic evidence found at the scene, they were conducted in the state of Nebraska, not by the FBI. Kathy Gonzalez, her blood matches, but it's not a 100% match, but it's close enough for Cersei and the sheriff's office to continue with their charging these six individuals with homicide. Now, what their statement is going to be is that because we have so many perpetrators, plus we have a victim, that they weren't going to be able to get a 100% match because it's probably a, a mixture, some kind of blood mixture. Yeah, that makes sense. The confessions, the five confessions are what will ultimately win over these convictions of all six of these individuals. And in fact, John Farrick says this in his book, and I have to echo this belief of his, that if the death penalty did not exist in Nebraska at the time, I don't know that they would have gotten all these confessions or any of them for that matter, because the death penalty was what was the threat to these individuals that took them from not being involved to confessing to being involved in a brutal homicide. And I don't want to get into opinions on death penalty for against. That's not what we're here to discuss. Just know that that was used as leverage against these individuals. Plus we also have a group that's really kind of a group of down and out people. You know, some people that have had tough upbringings have had bad situations some that are not quite all there, some that are easily impressionable. Yeah, but what they do is they use multiple people against each other, not just one and one. If it's one and one, you start thinking, well, it's he said, she said. Once these law enforcement officers are saying, look, we know you're involved. And if you don't cooperate like the others are cooperating, we're going to give you the death penalty. So then you're going to start contemplating in your head well i'm innocent of the crime i definitely don't want to die because of it so if i go along with the others then at least i'm alive in prison and i have a fighting chance to get out in 1989 the six that will go on to be known as the beatrice six were arrested for the crime of murder ultimately all six are charged and convicted and they will all serve pretty lengthy prison sentences. Now, this will be up until they are all, all six of them, exonerated in 2009. And the reason for this is that in 2008, DNA evidence implicated to a 100% certainty that Bruce Allen Smith, the original prime suspect in the murder was the sole perpetrator of this rape and homicide. But I thought his blood didn't match. But what we have here, Captain, is that Bruce Allen Smith was eliminated by testing performed by later disgraced lab analyst Joyce Gilchrist. So she just did a shoddy job with her testing and her findings in her test. Now, unfortunately, even though we've proven that Bruce Allen Smith committed this homicide, he could not be prosecuted because he died in Oklahoma back in 1992. Right. So he's dead and gone while these other individuals are sitting in prison for this murder charge. Now, out of the six, the way it works is some of them got only 10 years and some of them got like 40 years and others got life in prison. That's correct. We have White who received life in prison. The two males were charged, uh, most heavily charged, because they were the ones that were 
implicated by the others as committing the rape and the murder itself. Right. Unfortunately, in 2011, Joseph White was killed in a construction accident at work, and the state agreed to pay compensation to all of these individuals who served time in prison. So there was a lawsuit that was filed against the Gage County, uh, Gage County, Nebraska. It was actually dismissed a couple of times uh, before it finally went through. There was a trial for the lawsuit and the jury awarded millions and millions of dollars to not only the five that remain, but also to Joseph White's heirs. Now, this is not a extremely wealthy county. Right. And so the county was forced to raise taxes so that they could pay back the Beatrice six for the wrongful conviction. Well, it's sad in this case too, because again, law enforcement, you have all these forced confessions at some point. I mean, how many people do you have to have involved in this case? I just don't understand how somebody in law enforcement could. It's almost like they had to make up the story as they went along. And that's what Cersei was doing. And a little bit in his defense, I'm not going to come to his defense too much, but when you have these suspicions and you have this completely bogus theory that he believed, I I believe that he actually believed his own theory. Yeah, well, I believe that you believe that he believed his own theory. And the problem then becomes he starts finding people that, are going along with his theory and filling in a lot of the blanks along the way. Now they got to some of these uh, fill in the blanks. They got some of these blanks filled in by some questionable behavior. You know, you had a uh, psychologist that was involved that was telling people, you know, well, you probably blocked it out. You know, you could have been there and completely blocked it out just because you don't remember. It doesn't mean you didn't do it, right? You weren't there. And they started relying on a lot of the confessions, a lot of the portions of the confessions that implicated themselves and the the others came from first the notion of, well, the police tell me I was there, so I must have been there. And then secondly, it goes to they were taking information that some of the individuals said that they were they were having dreams about the crime. So they must have been there. Right. And but I also want to know how much force was used. And that's that's something that law enforcement would know. You see what I'm saying? Like if I, I actually if, if I'm going into the interview and I and within an hour or so I I start getting people to confess. I, yes, we all know that innocent people will confess to crimes they didn't commit. But I'm going to start going. Well, that was pretty easy. So maybe I am onto something. And what I'm saying is we don't know those details of of how the interrogations went. Well, if you want to know the details, check out John Farrick's book because he details that in his book. And what we do learn is that I don't believe that there was any type of force or abuse that was used. I mean, I shouldn't say any type of abuse because there was certainly some type of abuse, but I would put that more on the mental and emotional aspect of really kind of trying to corral these individuals and convincing them that they did, in fact, do this and altering their own statements and giving it back to them. We're talking about a situation where we have multiple individuals that were interviewed multiple times over series of days and weeks and and so on and so forth. And 
a lot of them started off with the story that they were innocent and had nothing to do with it. And over time, after being interviewed over and over and over again and sitting with the police psychologist and being hypnotized and this, that, and the other thing, it morphs into this weird situation of they go from being innocent to, yeah, I was guilty and they're guilty too. But that's what drives me nuts about some of the, these law enforcement and some of these detectives. It's the level of manipulation. It's the level of manipulations that you have to use on these individuals and multiple individuals to get any kind of confession. At some point, you should understand that you're only getting that confession because of the manipulation, not because it's the truth. All right. Thanks for joining us here in the garage. And if you are freak nasty, make sure you check out Off the Record, our bonus show that comes out every other week. But only do so if you're nasty. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for this week? Yes, sir, Captain. Obviously, this week we will be recommending Failure of Justice, A Brutal Murder and an Obsessed Cop, and Six Wrongful Convictions by John Farrick. You can find that wonderful title and many others on our website, truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page. This book is incredible. This is a very convoluted and difficult to understand story because there's so many people involved. There's so many different confessions. John Farrick did an amazing job of laying this case out and really detailing every portion of this case and investigation that ultimately took over four years so make sure you check out Failure of Justice by John Farrick. It's also available on Audible, so you can check it out there. I'm actually listening to it right now as we speak, as we record. Make sure you join us back here in the garage next week. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't worry. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 